You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22. While you're turning there, you know, not long after uh, the earth cooled and dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was this thing back in the 1980s called network television. That, that was pretty much all we had. And uh, one of the network television shows that I really enjoyed in the 80s, because it was so well written, was a cop show called Hill Street Blues. And, uh, you know, each and every episode of Hill Street Blues followed a certain format. Uh, Hill Street Blues was about the goings-on of uh, all these different officers that served in a precinct in a pretty rough part of town. And they would begin every episode uh, by showing roll call in the morning. The shift was about to start, and this character, Sergeant Phil Esterhaus, uh, would uh, tell the assembled cops about all the mayhem that was going on in the Hill Street area, which cops would be assigned to which aspect of that mayhem to manage. And uh, then he would dismiss them. And as the cops were getting up out of their chairs and heading for the exits, he would always say, and it was almost like a cliche, hey, 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 let's be careful out there. You know, I've come to believe that Phil Esterhaus's advice is a really good piece of advice uh, for Christians. You know, I think you could do a lot worse if you were to come up to a brand new baby Christian, someone who has just received the Lord as their Savior, and say the very same thing to them. Because let's face it, we live in a world that is not exactly conducive to growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be all kinds of trials and tribulations, uh, opportunities for spiritual mayhem that are going to come our way that are custom designed to take this little light of yours and it out. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, Simon Peter wrote these words, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Now, a couple things Peter shares with us here. Number one, did you have a rough week last week? Uh, did, did you have a situation come your way in life that seemed custom designed to frustrate you, to distract you, to throw you off stride in your walk with God? Peter's advice to you is pretty simple. Don't think that's strange. That is par for the course. But notice what else Peter says here. When we learn to respond, not react to these challenges. When we meet these challenges of life in what the Bible makes no bones about as a fallen sin, self, and Satan-dominated world, in hope, not in despair, learning to walk by faith and not by sight, to have a firm foundation, not of feelings, but a track record of God's faithfulness to approach these challenges, boy, we've got a fighting chance. This morning, we're going to see in Luke chapter 22, as Jesus and his disciples arguably come into one of the most challenging times they would ever face in his earthly ministry. The betrayal, the arrest, the sufferings, the crucifixion of Jesus. 
We're going to see how Jesus infused his disciples with that elusive essential that we call hope. Hopefully what we will come away from in this study is a greater understanding of what the power of hope can be within our lives. And hopefully we're going to see that the Christian life isn't the get-out-of-jail-free card from difficulties and trials and tribulations, but it is the guarantee that whatever happens to us in life, for good or for ill, we will never face it alone, and that God has a purpose and a plan that he is working out in the midst of these trials, and we see the end of it is going to absolutely blow our minds. Now, if you were with us in our study in Luke chapter 22, a couple weeks ago, we had Easter uh, services. Obviously, we focused in on the message of the resurrection. Uh, What a blessed hope that is. But if you're with us last time, we saw Jesus dealing with his disciples, literally in the shadow of the cross. Now there are scant hours between where Jesus is with his disciples and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is going to be under such spiritual stress, he is going to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It is scant hours until Judas Iscariot is going to lead a mob to betray him and betray Jesus with a kiss, the friendly greeting of that time. It is scant hours before Jesus is going to be led through the sham and mockery of kangaroo court-style trials, railroaded into a death sentence. It is scant hours until Jesus begins to be physically savaged, not only by guards, but by professionals who are going to flay open his back to the point where even internal organs begin to show through the process of scourging. Boy, a lot on someone's mind. You know, there, there's, there's people who will say, oh, you know, if Jesus would just give me a prophecy about what is happening uh, in my life, what I can expect in the future, you don't want to know. I mean, Jesus knew, but his disciples did not know. Now, stop and think for just a second. You're Jesus. You've invested three years, 365, 24-7, building into your disciples the truth of God, demonstrating the truth of God through amazing miracles, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, even giving them the opportunity, if you will, to go on out and uh, minister in your name and see God's power flow through their lives. You would think at the end of this, three years with the perfect teacher, three years with a master discipler, these disciples would be rip-roaring and ready to go. And you would be exactly wrong. (laughs) Last time, if you recall, at that moment where Jesus is face-to-face with the most agonizing time in his life, the disciples, on the other hand, are concerned about other issues. Verse 24 says, There was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, if you are with us last time, uh, we saw that 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 word dispute in the original language is really interesting because it not only talks about people involved in a conflict, it also implies it was a conflict that the people involved loved to be a part of. They loved to argue about this point. We saw very clearly how the, the disciples at a number of different occasions got into this debate about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Well, Jesus pulls them up short. He said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, 
And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. Now, here we see Jesus pulling him up short. And one of the things that you can be sure of, if you have any kind of relationship with Jesus at all, is that sooner or later, he is going to pull you up short as well. He is going to show you where you've got bad attitudes. He's going to show you where you've got misplaced priorities. Dare I say, he's going to show you where some of your relationships are absolutely cockeyed and in desperate need of his mercy and his touch. There's all kinds of pastors out there these days who will invite you to hear a message that really can be summed up in the words of Billy Joel, don't go changing to try and please me. Well, that's not the message of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is uh, God comes to us to change us entirely and totally. And if there's one area of your life where you're absolutely convinced, you know, it's okay just the way it is. This is just my character flaw. This is my weak point. Uh, you know, I was raised in this kind of environment. I'm always going to be this way. I guarantee you, if your experience walking with Jesus is anything like mine, he is going to start putting you into situations where you got to deal where you've got to come face to face with that particular flaw. Not to shame you, but to change you. Uh, when you signed up to be a Christian, when you invited Jesus into your heart, you know what you signed up for? God desires for you to have the very character of Jesus Christ within your life. And that means some things are going to have to change. That means some things are going to have to go. That means some things are going to have to be imported to your life. And Jesus pulls these disciples up short. You know, again, it's amazing to me when you look at this passage, how quickly the disciples went from the upper room conversation when Jesus said he was going to be betrayed to asking, uh, asking, am I the one? Uh, and in a moment's notice, uh, I think their fearful attitudes turned things around and caused them to get in a debate about who is number one, if you will. So Jesus pulls them up short, and he does so in a wonderful way. He brings them back to focusing in on who he is and what he has done among them. Talk is cheap, right? But Jesus not only spoke God's word, he exemplified God's word. He was able to say, follow my example. And, and boy, that's, that's a pretty major uh, comeuppance for a lot of people. I imagine Jesus' words stung a little bit, but he didn't leave them there. I love what verse 26 says. It says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink as on my table in my kingdom and sit on uh, thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now notice there was going to come a time when the disciples great desire to have a position in the kingdom of God is going to be fulfilled. No matter how wacky they were, no matter how off base they were, God was going to continue to work in them and bring them to a place where they could actually receive this great desire they had. Their desire was great, they wanted to serve the Lord. They wanted to be close to the Lord. It was just the direction that they took to get there that was off. 
And isn't that usually the truth about things in our lives? We have good intentions, for sure, but the execution seems to be lacking. We end up trampling a bit on other people, even if we have godly intentions. And so Jesus reaffirms to them, you know, you're going to get where you need to go. Uh, You know, it is so important for us to understand that just because God corrects us doesn't mean that he's done with us. As a matter of fact, if you hearken back to your days as a child, I know you're all perfect children and never needed discipline, but uh, if my mom was here, she would say, not him. (laughs) You know, I I can remember a a time where uh, a couple buddies of mine and I were about eight years old, and we decided it'd be really cool to wake up at two in the morning and sneak out of the house and go do mayhem in the neighborhood. So, you know, I got my little alarm clock and I put it under my pillow and I woke up at 2 a.m. and I snuck out my window and I went down to my friend Luke Saunders' house about half a mile away from where I lived. And uh, the front door was open, so I just walked on in. And I noticed that uh, there was nobody stirring there. And I went and I saw my friend Luke and he was asleep and he goes, oh, I'm too tired. Uh, Let's just forget about it. I went, well, okay. So I started to leave Luke's house to head back to my house. Well, unbeknownst to me, Luke's dad was an airline pilot coming back from a red eye. And he comes walking up the walk, and he sees me leaving the house. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, oh, just walking. And I just kept going. What else do you do? You just keep going. So I just kept going, and I'm walking up the street. And I'm walking up the street, and I'm looking up at the telephone lines. I go, oh, please, 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 don't call. Don't call. Don't call. Please, 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 don't call. And I, I realized when I came around the bend to where my house was up the street. If all the lights were off, I was home free. But if that was lit up like jailbreak at Alcatraz, right? I was in big time trouble. I came around the corner and there it was. And there was the welcoming committee on the front doorstep. My mom looking worried, my dad looking at me like, now I know why tigers eat their young. And my older brother staring at me with this grin on his face, like, you're gonna get it. My dad, being a master of discipline, took one look at his second son and said words that still strike terror into my heart to this day. I will deal with you in the morning. (laughs) Yikes. So I went to bed and waited for the morning to come. I mean, if Charles Schultz was drawing a cartoon of this, you would see this black panel with two big blue eyes wide open in the dark because I didn't sleep a wink. Well, my dad came in. I, I, I thought, uh, you know, maybe I could soften the blow by putting on like four or five pairs of underwear. He saw right through that. Gave me the right hand of fellowship and let me sit there and think about the error of my ways for about an hour or so. But then my dad did something uh, that I'll never forget. Parenting 101. He came back in an hour later and sat down with me, and he explained to me why he disciplined me, because he loved me and he didn't want to see me get into trouble. And then he gave me a hug. And you know, I was eight years old at that time, and I had a lot of experiences with my dad. But I will tell you, I never felt closer to him or more loved by him than I did at that moment. You see, that's why God disciplines us. That's why God doesn't leave you alone. You ever wondered why God doesn't leave you alone? Haven't I grown enough? No, you haven't grown enough. And neither have I. I I love what Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 11 through 12 says about this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. 
For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, even as a father, the son, in whom his heart delights. So you see, the first measure of hope that we have in this world, I I don't know if you ever do this. It's a great mental exercise for me anyway. I take a step back sometimes, and I look at my life, and I look at the challenges that I'm currently facing, and I ask myself this question, how would I have faced these challenges if I had never come to know the Lord? The presence of Jesus in our lives, taking all things in our lives, working all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That is the basis of hope. In fact, we are not even left to guess what God's good is, working all things together for good. You know what that good is? The very next verse tells us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, sometimes I think we shoot way too low in the Christian life. We just want to be materially blessed. We just want, you know, the the, the relationships we have to be all in line. We want a moment's peace in this world. And God smiles and goes, no, I've called you to greater things than that. I've called you to be like my son. And it's going to take some work. The disciples needed correction. And that's exactly what the Lord gave to them. And, you know, when the Lord corrects somebody, you know, when there's a pretty convicting sermon that goes on, maybe uh, you know of somebody whose consequences kind of caught up with them, uh, you find yourself going, well, you know, it's uh, good that uh, that person's convicted. Uh, it's a good thing that I'm so perfect. God doesn't need to convict me of these things. I think I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I've discovered something. Have you ever sat through a really convicting message and find yourself thinking, boy, I know somebody who really needs to hear this. Man, oh, you're just thinking about that person. And oh, I'm going to go get that that CD. I'm not even going to risk them downloading. I'm going to give them the CD. Oh, you really need to listen to this. Yeah, I've discovered something. The more inclined I am to think in my mind, man, I really know somebody who needs to hear this. Uh, It's the Lord's way of saying, yeah, and his name is Scott Richards. The the, the more I don't want to deal with a particular passage, the more I like to apply it to somebody else. And there was one person, I think, in that room was hearing Jesus kind of lay out the, uh, the facts of life to the disciples that probably felt exactly that same way. His name was Simon Peter. Now, I don't know if there was a tell there. You know what a tell is? It's, it's like a way of someone giving away through an expression or a gesture what's going on in their mind. Maybe uh, Simon Peter was standing there with his arms folded, kind of nodding and saying, yeah, you tell him, Lord. Because for some reason, Jesus ceases to deal with the 11. Judas has already fled. But he ceases to deal with the 11, and he starts to focus in on one disciple. Simon Peter. And he does so in an interesting way. Verse 31, we read this. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Whoa. (laughs) 
Notice how Jesus gets personal with Peter. And he gets personal with Peter, and he's got an agenda here. And I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we explore this. Jesus is going to be giving Peter a crash course in the reality and power of biblical hope. It doesn't seem real hopeful at first glance, but keep that in the back of your mind. The first aspect of hope that we see here, that we need to hold on to, is even how Peter is addressed here. The Lord said, Simon, Simon. Now, he didn't say the word Simon because he was stuttering. He didn't say the word Simon because, like some speakers that we will not mention, he's trying to think of what he's going to say next. He wasn't just filling air by saying that twice. This was a remarkable example of what we would call the Jesus style. You know, our, our good friend Gail Irwin wrote a great book called The Jesus Style, and I, I, the, the book is great, but the title, I think, says it all. Jesus had a certain style of relating to people. He had a certain style of communicating, and this tendency of Jesus to repeat a name is part of that Jesus style. Can you think of another time in Scripture where Jesus did the same thing? Well, flip a few chapters back to Luke chapter 10 and verse 36. There were 38, I should say. Then it says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Say, Scott, I think you're being a little dramatic there. I don't think so. Uh, Try to imagine what's going on here. Here you've got Mary and Martha. They, They have a house that is significant enough and means well enough to entertain Jesus and his 12 disciples and probably some other people that are hanging along. You have these two sisters who have this place with two different responses to this situation. Jesus, as you see in other accounts in the gospel, was very close friends, not just with Mary and Martha, but also with their brother Lazarus. And they were a real comfort to him and an encouragement to him in his ministry. So Jesus is going to have a meal there. And while the meal is being prepared, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging on his every word. Martha is in the kitchen and is probably trying to think, "Ah, I got an awful lot of work to do here uh, to be able to properly feed all these people. And and it's not going to be, you know, uh, Oscar Mayer hot dogs or something like that. This is the Messiah here. We got to put on a decent meal around here. And it's not going to just be one course. We really want them to be honored in a proper way and eat, uh, you know, a wonderful meal like this. And, and, And she's probably running around trying to get all these different things together. And then she realizes something. She's all alone in this. Where's my sister? You can almost see her kind of looking out from the kitchen. And seeing Mary just sitting there at Jesus' feet and just hanging on his every word, just as close to Jesus as you could be. And, and, and who would be offended by that? Well, Martha, for one, right? You're going to probably see her, probably like us. You know, we start out dropping not-so-subtle hints, like from the kitchen going, <coughs> Boy, <coughs> you know, sure a lot of work to do in here. <coughs> yeah, you know, putting a meal together for uh, 14, 15, 20 people like that. A lot of work going on in here. <coughs> You know, Mary just sitting there, hanging on Jesus' every word. 
you know, that's not working. So maybe she's banging the pots a little louder and, you know, there's all this clanking going on, you know, and she looks out and Mary, Mary's just, you know, looking, looking at Jesus, not, not working. And finally, Martha gets so bent out of shape, so peeved, she comes out and she at this point, catch this, is mad at Jesus. Notice what she says. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve here alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. You see the jump? First of all, my sister Mary, she been spiritual there, just listening to Jesus. She said, no, no, oh, there's a time to listen to God's truth. There's a time to be out here in the kitchen and serving. Isn't serving an important thing? Well, you know, I'm going to just be a martyr here, and I'm going to do the serving here, but I'm never going to be able to do this unless my sister gets out here. And, and, and oh, look at her. She just say, wait a minute. Jesus should know better than this. Jesus, you know what I'm going through right now? Jesus was the servant of all. You know, I mean, I, why isn't Jesus telling her to get in here? And so by the time she finally breaks down and blows her gasket, Mary's not her problem anymore. Jesus is her problem. You ever gotten mad at Jesus because he doesn't see things your way? He doesn't straighten out the people in life that you think need to be straightened out? Well, you've got a lot of company here. Martha felt exactly that way. Now, notice how Jesus answered. He said to her, Martha, Martha. Oh, repeating that name. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I've heard pastors go off on Martha in all of this, and we've given her a little good nature ribbing here ourselves here today, and they go, oh, Jesus, Martha, Martha, just barked at him. You know, no, I, I think these were words of tenderness. They were words of understanding. And when Jesus used Martha's name twice, I don't think it was disciplinary. You know, one of the ways you know when you're a kid, you're in big time trouble is if your parent refers to you by your first, middle, and last name. You ever notice that? Some people believe that that's what was going on here. But no, I just think what Jesus was doing was slowing down that full steam locomotive of anger and resentment that was in Martha. Probably just looked her in the eyes and went, Martha, Martha, here's a teachable moment. You're worried and concerned about so many things. Only one's necessary. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just learn that one lesson? We're worried and concerned about so many things. Worried and concerned about so many things that are absolutely beyond our control. Worried and concerned about what's going on in politics. Worried and concerned about what's happening in the economy. Worried and concerned uh, about what the weather's going to be like. All these things we have absolutely no control over. And I think Jesus would say the same thing to us. Only... One thing is needed. What's the one thing? Being close to Jesus, like Mary was. And yeah, there was a time to serve, but there was also a time to receive. And Jesus understood something you can't give out of an empty bucket. You know, there, there was a time to fix a meal, but if you're not fixing a meal from the motive of love, what good does it do, really? You see, Jesus wanted to minister to Martha. And in the same way, when he says, Simon, Simon, <laughs> I don't know what the tell was. I don't know if Peter was going, oh, yeah, well, these guys, I'm glad you're straightening them out, Lord. 
But Jesus has some words for Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. Whoa. Satan's asked for you? Yeah, boy, I'm glad I'm not Peter. You know, Satan asking for you to sift you like wheat. Understand, you may be closer to Peter than you understand at this point. Uh, In the book of Job, chapter 1, we are told that Satan is about the business of asking for people to sift them like wheat. Uh, In uh, the book of Job, chapter 1, and verse 8, this famous passage, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him around his household and all around him that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands, his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and the rest, as they say, is history. Job lost everything. Satan sifted Job as wheat. Now, there are some who look at that and go, man, I don't want to get sifted, you know, as wheat. Well, don't be so sure that you don't want that to happen in your life. What does it mean to sift something as wheat? Well, those of you who understand a little bit about how they used to process grain back during those times is you would get wheat and you would bring it into a threshing floor. You would take these large forks and you would uh, toss the grain up in the air. And the prevailing wind would come along and it would separate the good grain, which was heavy, from the useless part of the wheat, which is called chaff. When God comes to our lives and he turns things upside down like that, understand he's separating the wheat from the chaff. He isn't throwing you and tossing you in the air for his own amusement. He isn't allowing your life to go topsy-turvy because he's got nothing better to do. He is doing this because there's things in your life he wants purified and there's things in your life he wants eliminated, blown away with the wind, the stuff that really doesn't matter. He wants you to be fruitful on a level that we can't even begin to understand. Now, when Satan had his way with Job, remember Satan said to God, you know, you take away everything he owns, you know, curse you to your face. What was Job's response to that? And he lost everything, including his children at that point. What was Job's response? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That tells me a couple things. First of all, Satan can't read your mind. There's people that try to exalt Satan and and, and make him the equal and opposite of God. Satan completely got it wrong as far as the character of Job was concerned, not just once, but twice. But the other thing that we really need to understand is this. There are times where God will allow fiery trials into our lives. There are times, as we read in that passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, that fiery trials which are to try us are going to come our way. But understand this. It is not to defeat us. It is to complete us. 
And we need to understand this. You know, one of those passages of scriptures that uh, looks really good on other people, but not so much on ourselves, is found in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Now, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice he doesn't say count it all joy when you get a rotten diagnosis from your doctor or a relationship you thought was going to last forever suddenly goes nuclear. He didn't say count it all joy about these circumstances. He said count it all joy when you look at these circumstances and say, I'm going to see this as a trial. Now, every time the bottom falls out in our lives, Every time we find ourselves in a place where we feel like we're in over our head and kind of lifestyle in this day and age, we have a choice. And it's fascinating. In James chapter 1, when it says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, the, the, the word trial there can be translated either trial or temptation. Exact same Greek word. What makes something a trial and what makes something a temptation how you choose to respond to it. Are you going to respond by saying, you know what, this is a really negative set of circumstances. There's nothing good about it in, in, in a tangible sense. But I'm going to choose to look at this as a golden opportunity to trust God. I'm going to cast my cares on him. I don't know why this is going on. I'm not even going to try to figure out why this is going on. All I'm going to do is ask the question, what? What does it mean for me to be faithful to God under this set of circumstances? If you do that, you're going through a trial. You're going to be sifted like wheat for sure. And I think if we were to interview stocks of wheat, they'd say it's not a pleasant experience. But all you're going to experience in that is the wheat is going to be purified and the chaff is going to be blown away. If on the other side of the coin, I go, well, you know, I don't like this. And God didn't clear this with me. And boy, I'm really frustrated at this. And man, I'm going to hold my breath till I turn blue. And I'm going to take my toys and go home. And I'm just not going to go to church. And you show you, God, you did that to me. I'm going to get it. That's a temptation, right? What's the temptation as opposed to trial? A trial says, whatever's going on here, I'm going to trust God. A temptation is, oh, I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to take my life in my own hands again. I'm going to do the same old things that I've always done in the same old way and expect different results. I'm going to approach my problems in a way that is absolutely indistinguishable from the way a stone-cold atheist would approach my problems. That's the choice. That's the fork in the road. Simon, Simon, <laughs> Jesus, compassion here is hard to miss. Satan is asked to have you to sift you as wheat. Now listen to this, and you want to talk about powerful hope. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now a couple things here. Why can we have hope when the heat is on? Number one, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Do you realize that? You know, sometimes uh, people will say, oh, you know, I, I, I just wish I had a real prayer warrior in my life. And I love prayer warriors, by the way. Uh, people that have that, that amazing gift, I think it is, that, that they pray and, and, and the Lord 
hears them. You know, I, I, I had the package deal uh, when I met Pam. Uh, I not only uh, had this beautiful wife, but her mom was just this amazing prayer warrior. And if there was ever anything big time going on in the church or in our lives, we knew we could share it with Marie. And Marie, when she prayed, God would answer. You know, I tell people it was so frustrating for me because I could never tell mother-in-law jokes because I had such a wonderful mother-in-law. <laughs> and it was always wonderful to know that no matter how crazy things got in a church, in our church or in our lives, we could always share it with Marie, and Marie would share it with God, and, and it was, well, Marie has gone home to her reward. You'll say, well, what do you do now? You know, got your, your prayer warrior there, they're supporting you. Oh, you know, I, I understand something. I, I am so glad that Marie is home in glory, and uh, we're going to see her again. It's just going to seem like uh, an instant. We're all going to be back together again, but I've got the ultimate prayer warrior praying for me, and so do you. Uh, in the book of Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 31, one of those really encouraging scriptures that just gets more encouraging as it goes on. We are told, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, catch this. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died, furthermore is risen, who is seated at the right hand of God, who will also make intercession for us. Do you understand the radical truth in that passage? Jesus right now is praying for you. Maybe he's praying for you to wake up right now. Who knows? But He's praying for you, and he's praying for you in a powerful way. Earlier on in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, we are told, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the minds knows what the heart of the Spirit is as he intercedes for us according to God's will. Understand, you've got two prayer warriors praying for you. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are interceding for you right now. When Jesus looked at Simon Peter and said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, he wasn't just whistling Dixie. Now, some of you might be going, yeah, but, you know, I kind of read the rest of the story. It seems like Peter's faith failed, doesn't it? Well, that doesn't catch Jesus by surprise, he said, I pray for you, your faith may not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And we'll see in our continuing study in Luke that Jesus was spot on. That's exactly what happened. Well, Jesus prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. Doesn't it seem like Jesus' prayer wasn't answered? Not hardly. What failed Simon Peter in that day? I'd like to suggest to you that it wasn't Peter's faith. Peter still knew who Jesus was. He wasn't too keen on letting other people that he knew know that Jesus was who he was. What failed Peter on that day? It wasn't his faith. It was his hope. When he saw Jesus hustled away, savagely beaten, heading for the cross, that wasn't on Peter's agenda. 
His hope was on earthly things. His hope was seeing God coming around to his point of view. His hope failed him. Why? Because it was placed in the wrong place. He wasn't trusting God anymore. He was trusting his opinions about what God needed to do in his life. And that's, gang, where we stumble. Real hope says to God, Lord, you know what you're doing in my life. No matter what it looks like on the outside, you know what you're up to. Real hope says that no matter how incomprehensible my circumstances might be, God is working all things together for good. Real hope looks at the trials and even the tragedies of life and doesn't say, why? Why me, God? Never ask that question. You won't like the answer. Real hope says, what, God? What does it mean for me to trust you, even in this outrageous set of circumstances I'm in? Why does God take us through that? Well, Jesus gives us a little high sign here. He says, I pray for you that your faith will not fail, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I love the Lord because he sees the end from the beginning. He sees Peter's not only stumbling, but his getting back on his feet. He sees that wonderful work of restoration he was going to do in John chapter 21, if you want to read about it. Or even after Peter denied knowing the Lord not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus gave him the opportunity to reaffirm his love for Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. With a very interesting caveat, he said, Peter, do you love me? And he, he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And you know what he said? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Take the experience that you've had of doing a spiritual face plant, but getting back in the race and let other people know that what I've done for you is possible for them. <laughs> I, I tell people, you know, when I went through seminary, it was very expensive. You know, it was like $132 a unit. Uh, and uh, it's just custom designed to get you in all kinds of massive student loan debt, and maybe some of you out there know what that's like. But the most expensive form of spiritual education isn't something you'll ever get in a classroom. The most expensive form of spiritual education is going through horrendous, horrific circumstances, trusting God and holding on maybe by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin, getting through to the other side, and then understanding that God was faithful. That is the ticket. That is the tuition. That is the price necessary to be paid. Catch this for real ministry. Real ministry isn't just standing in front of a group of people like you and hemming and hawing for a few minutes. Real ministry is when you can look somebody in the eye whose heart is breaking, whose life is falling apart, and say, you know... I understand how that feels. But here is what God has done for me in a similar set of circumstances. You, you know, I, I share with people, I'm a member of a club I, I, I never really wanted to join. I, I'm a cancer survivor. And it was just amazing to me after my diagnosis, and many of you walked through that valley of the shadow with us, it was just amazing how many people were diagnosed with the very same cancer that I had that I had the opportunity to be able to share with. I had no idea so many people had it. It's one thing to go up to somebody and say, well, you know, I, I got this bad diagnosis. Well, you know, if you work out a little bit more and 
you know, watch what you eat and maybe take some multis every once in a while, do some pushaways from the table, you won't have that problem. It's another thing for somebody to look at you and just shake their head and say, oh, man, I know what that feels like. I know how scary that is. But here's what God has done in my life. That's real ministry. And there's only one way to get there. There's only one way to have a blessed hope. It's being in a place where you've got no choice but to trust God. And when you trust God, you see him take you through to the other side. That's the kind of hope we need these days. When it you say, oh, I, I just love what Lamentations has to say about this. Now, I know that Lamentations isn't the crispy part of your Bible. Very few of us turn to the book of Lamentations when we're looking for a spiritual shot in the arm. But may I suggest to you, in the book of Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah the prophet while he was literally watching the smoke rise from the destruction of Jerusalem, listen to what he had to say about what he learned in that place about hope. You have moved my soul far from my peace, Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 17 says. I have forgotten prosperity. I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. There's a lot of hope in that passage, isn't there? Do you have that hope in your life? Let's pray and ask the Lord to give that to you. Father, thank you for the blessed hope that we have, that you are a God who sees and knows and understands. You are a God who goes with us in the times of blessing and the times we feel pretty blasted. Lord, you've called us to be fruitful. You've called us to bear much fruit, and that fruit would remain. But kind of like stalks of wheat, we've got to be tossed up a little bit before the chaff begins to blow away. And I thank you, Lord, that like a good farmer seeking to build, have a crop and bring it into your barn, you're not going to quit tossing us about until that chaff is removed. Lord, help us to be wise enough to realize there's stuff in our lives that just has to go. Help us to end the justifying, the excuse-making, the finger-pointing that keeps us from dealing with the chaff, dealing with us, dealing with our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you're not a God that just ministers to the masses. You're the one who points to the individual, just like you did with Peter. And just as you had a plan and worked out that plan in Peter's life, that his faith wouldn't fail, and that when he got to the end and understood that his hope had to only be in you and not in himself, then he could strengthen his brethren. Help us to have that same vision for our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.